Well, good morning, everybody. How are you? Good day? All right. It is a good day for a good day, as my favorite people, Chip and Joanna Gaines, say. Anybody else fans of Chip and Joanna back there? Come on now. Anybody is part of the counter-revolution? No shiplap for you? Just kidding. All right. Anyway, I wanted to begin our time today by teaching you something. Um, It's something of a tradition in my life when I'm in the Holy Land and we're with a group of people. We begin each morning by reciting the most important command in the Jewish scriptures, according to Jesus and about everybody else in the ancient world and the modern world, as far as the Jews are concerned. In English, it goes like this. A hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. So what I'd love to do with you is invite you to learn a little bit of Hebrew this morning, um, which is actually, obviously, the language they still use in Israel. So when you're there and you're walking around, you will have people um, at significant sites that will recite this together. They call it the Shema. You want to say Shema? Go ahead. One, two, three. Shema. Very nice. So why don't you, and I'd like to invite you to stand. So we'll do this together. Um, and uh, I'll give it to you in bite-sized chunks, assuming a few of you are unfamiliar with Hebrew. There you go. So, all right. Uh, and the other part of the tradition is I like to raise my right pinky. So if you could do this as well. Uh, this reminds us that the children of Israel were once slaves in Egypt and God brought them out by the power of his outstretched hand. We believe he is the most powerful being in ever uh, and he only needs his pinky. So that's where the pinky thing came from. So uh, let me give it to you in chunks. It goes like this. I do repeat, repeat after me. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Eloecha Uvhol Levavha Uvhol Nafsheha Uvhol Meodeha Yes! All right, let's try English now. Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. And then Jesus added, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, Well, I am absolutely pumped because in the next few days, I get to explore some of my favorite content with you. And so just, again, it's an honor for me and my family to be here. Um, As I said yesterday, and to catch you up if you weren't with us, uh, the series of talks that I want to do with you is called Better, and it's sort of my take on the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is a much longer series than we have time for, so I've just, you know, picked a few highlights. Um, But I named the series Better after my favorite quote, or one of my favorite quotes, and as I mentioned yesterday, I'm kind of a nerd. I read all the time, and so when I find a quote that makes it into my top 10, it's kind of a big deal, and I like this quote because it gets right to the heart of why I've dedicated my life to help everybody that I can become a Jesus follower. And and the quote goes like this. Following Jesus makes your life better, and following Jesus makes you better at life. Following Jesus makes your life better, and following Jesus makes you better at life. And I love this quote because it helps us ground ourselves to what Jesus came to do. It reminds us that before Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he lived and he taught and he loved and he healed and he modeled how to live a better life right here and right now. He he modeled for us what it looks like to live beyond those initial, often destructive impulses that arise in our heart and to trust God for the decisions that we make. 
And so to be fair, many people miss this reality. In my line of work, um, I come uh, into contact with a lot of people who, for one reason or another, walked away from church for a season. They took an extended sabbatical, or one lady called it her prodigal tour, which I thought was kind of fun. But anyway, um, when I interact with these people and I say, you know, why is it that you walked away from your faith? What they basically come to is they say, you know, I just, I just never had the sense that God was really for me. I missed that idea. And I said, well, what did you think about God? And they said, well, I, I kind of thought about God as like, you know, a cosmic lawgiver slash police officer in the sky who wanted to drop down a bunch of rules from heaven to control me and to keep me from doing the things that I really wanted to do to keep me from having fun in my life. And all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, that's like teenagers. They have thought that too, right? Uh, it's like these people would say, you know, I was taught to follow the rules of religion. And in many cases, these rules were outlined as much by the Bible as they were, you know, by pastors and parents who came up with things to try to sort of help me, but ultimately sort of try to control my behavior. And what they would do is they would say, you need to do these rules, you know, or else. And the or else was sort of left nebulous. It wasn't really defined. It's like you need to follow the rules or else. And I grew up in the 1980s, okay, Reagan era, woo, right? And uh, I made a list of my favorite rules from the 1980s from the church that I grew up in. Maybe some of you will resonate with these rules. 80s rules. Number one, I remember the day that my youth pastor explained to me that Christians don't dance. And my first thought was that, that not all Christians should dance because I'm a tall, skinny, white guy, and I shouldn't dance. It's really not attractive. And that, that's not what he meant. He said, you know, categorically, people of faith should not dance. But here was the problem. I was in seventh grade when we had this conversation, and I actually was one of those seventh graders that read the Bible, which is just, I know, I've always been a little bit weird that way. And I, I said to him, but, but didn't King David dance before the Lord? And he got really quiet, looked at me, and he's like, you always do this to me. And I was like, they always, always do what to you? And then I said, and last year, because I was paying attention, hello, right, in youth group, and you were talking about how we were to celebrate God's word. And you said, you know, in the synagogues in, in Israel, when they open the Torah closet, and Torah is where they keep the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, and they bring it to the front, to the Bema, in order to read it aloud over the people, the people follow it like a parade and they dance. So the whole dance thing doesn't make a lot of sense. And he said, I'm calling your mom. I was like, go ahead. Anyway, um, then I remember the day that he said Christians don't drink alcohol. And I thought, well, that's also interesting because I was on the Bible quiz bowl team. Shocker, right? And I was taught on one of those flashcards that Jesus' first miracle was to what? Turn water to wine. And so I was like, I just got a question about that one too. I said, you know, the whole, you know, don't drink. And I'm, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not an alcohol person, but that like, well, how can you say don't drink alcohol when Jesus' first miracle was water to wine? And the guy looked at me and he goes, it wasn't wine. And I said, well, I'm a simple guy. Why did they translate wine then? You know, if it wasn't wine. And he said, well, it, you know, Jewish people, they don't really drink wine. Okay, then I've been to Israel a few times now and I'm telling you, they drink wine. Okay, next rule, don't play cards. And this was weird for a couple of reasons. Actually, when I uh, shared some of these thoughts at my church, I had a guy come up afterwards and he goes, oh, dude, in my family, there was no card playing allowed except for Uno. And he said, and I still to this day cannot figure out why Uno is any different. They are cards with numbers on them. But anyway, Uno was okay. Uh, and for me, we had a lake house growing up and we would go and it would be a rainy weekend. And man, Euchre saved my life up there. You have any Euchre fans in the house? Yeah. 
That's a Michigan thing. If you're from Ohio, we can tell you later. But anyway, yeah. Um, then there was this one, don't listen to rap music, okay? My problem was I came of age during the birth of some of the greatest rap music ever recorded, including the Beastie Boys. Any fans out there? Yeah, if you're not a fan of the Beastie Boys, you need to owe it to yourself. Just go to their like top tracks on Spotify. Just listen to it and just bask in the glory that is Mike D, okay? So there you go. Um, so that was one thing. And then don't date. I remember this one. They actually told us we were supposed to kiss dating goodbye. And again, I'm in seventh grade and I thought, kiss, dating, goodbye. That's interesting because I thought dating was how you got to meet people. I didn't want to date. I just thought it was odd that you told me that I shouldn't date or I couldn't date. And he said, well, you don't want to date because you know where that can lead. And I'm in seventh grade and I thought, the movies? Where does it lead? I don't understand. Okay, and then one more just for fun because we're on a roll. Don't wash the car on Sundays, okay? But, but if you have to, you need to wash it in the garage with the garage door closed so the neighbors don't see you. And I remember as a kid just going, that is really weird. And after I unpacked all that with my counselor, I felt so much better about myself. I don't even know what was going on there. But yeah, yeah. But I, I say this to say that these are the sorts of rules that often lead people to believe that God wants to steal joy from their lives. And, and moreover, these sorts of rules and their inability to follow them are a reason why so many people walk away from church. They seem to view God as nothing more than an endless dispenser of thou shalt nots. But here's the good news. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Because if you were to say to Jesus, how are we to think of the creator of heaven and earth? Like, how, how do you want us to think of God? And the Jewish people in the Old Testament, they had all kinds of names for God. Some of you know way more of them than I do, right? But Jesus said, okay, there's one name in the Old Testament to describe God. I want you to put it at the top of the list. I want you to think about God and pray to God as your heavenly Father. The best image that I can give you about who God is and what he is like is a perfect heavenly Father. And I, I know for a few of us, we're like, uh, that's a marketing problem, right? Because Jesus, you don't know, my dad wasn't great, and he wasn't there, and he didn't always care. At least he didn't feel like he cared. And so I get what you're trying to, I mean, but no. And Jesus would look back and say, no, you don't understand. He's not like your imperfect earthly father. He's a perfect heavenly father who's always on your side, who's always in your corner. And by the way, will sometimes tell you to not to do things that you want to do, not because he wants to steal joy from you, but because he knows where that path goes. And he wants you to trust him about where life is found. Jesus would say to us, listen, you access the better life not by rule following, but as we said yesterday, by engaging in the with God sort of life, that life where God is, is the king and his rule and reign come and are demonstrated in your life by the choices that you make. Well, what I want to do with our time this morning is I want to talk about Jesus' perspective on religious rules. Uh, because for some of you, this might actually surprise you in a wonderful way. Um, because in fact, the good news is that Jesus gave his followers uh, rule, not rules. That, and that's the name of the talk. I was pretty excited about it, but every time I do that joke, no one laughs. So that's okay. Rule, not rules. So that, if, if you want to know in the back what to call it, that's what it is. So and to show you what I mean, I want to return again to the Sermon on the Mount. As we said yesterday, it's the largest block of Jesus' teaching found in the New Testament of your Bibles. And Bible nerds tell us it's the blueprint for Christian living. And I want to focus on something Jesus said that day that was so stunning 
and so disruptive that his disciples couldn't possibly have grasped what he was trying to get at, let alone absorb it. It wasn't even until after the resurrection that I think they fully began to embrace it. And even that took them a while. So let me take a moment to set the stage. Um, As we said yesterday, Sermon on the Mount was delivered here on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Um, It's beautiful. Uh, There's a mountain range called the Golan Heights that you can see. You're looking here at the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, One of the first things when I bring people there that they are shocked by is that the Sea of, especially if they're from Michigan, the Sea of Galilee is not Lake Michigan. So when you think of the Sea of Galilee, um, it's about, I did some math this morning on my walk, it's 20 times the size of Gull Lake. So it's big, but it's not huge. It's the biggest body of fresh water in the Middle East. And and so one day, 2,000 years ago, uh, Jesus delivers the Sermon on the Mount here. And, And so Jesus has begun to teach and he's begun to heal and word has begun to spread about this rabbi Uh, from Nazareth, who's teaching new things and who's doing things that no one had seen done before. And so people began to flock to hear him and to see him. They're coming from as far far away as Jerusalem, which is like a 90-mile walk on a good day. Uh, And so the crowds grow into the point that they're huge, and Jesus responds by retreating. And so Matthew tells us this as the setup for the Sermon on the Mount. He says, now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples, the the 12 young men uh, that he had called to follow him, came to him and he began to teach them. And that's actually a significant detail because it's critical for us to understand that Jesus' first audience for this content were young Jewish guys, probably high school or early college age. So all those uh, pictures you've seen of them with beards, I would say not accurate. But anyway, that's just me. Uh, Versus all the Renaissance artists, so maybe you'd go with them. I don't know. But anyway, not important. Uh, These guys were from small towns along the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee, and that's a very specific region in the ancient world. The most passionately Orthodox Jewish families lived in the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee, in those fishing villages. They ordered their life around the scriptures. Every Sabbath, every Saturday, they would flow all the families together into the synagogue. Capernaum, where you can visit right on the shores, the fishing village, uh, it's not a huge village. The synagogue is massive. It was the center of their world. And, And so these young guys would have been very familiar with the Jewish rules of religion. They knew that you needed to dress right, talk right, walk right, eat right, and keep the Sabbath. In fact, in Jesus' day, there were like a crushing array of rules that Jewish people had to follow. The Old Testament contains 613 commandments, uh, things that you're supposed to do and some things that you're not supposed to do um, if you wanted God to bless you and not to punish you. Uh, Moreover, the Jewish religious establishment wanted to take God's rules so seriously, they actually created a ring of rules around the rules. They fenced the rules, they would say in order for you to not get close to breaking God's rules. So they made kind of a broader category of rules. So just by way of example, I found a few Jewish rules in the modern era. So this would be like today in Israel um, that they've instituted to make sure the Jewish people didn't break one of the Ten Commandments to not to work on the Sabbath. So here's the current Jewish rules. And some of these are just awesome. So um, they're a little accurate, (laughs) a little specific. Don't walk over 0.5681818 miles 
or as soon as you pass that marker, you are now doing work and breaking the command. And so if you're on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem today and you exit, there's several streets that kind of lead to the Temple Mount, you're walking and you will see these poles on every major street exiting the temple when you've hit that distance so that you don't inadvertently do work and break the command through the Sabbath. Uh, Second one I love, don't carry something between spaces. So in the Jewish world, your life is divided into private space and public space. So just by way of example here, let's say an Orthodox Jewish guy wakes up in the morning. He has a fancy coffee maker that he's loaded the night before. So he's not going to do work on the Sabbath. And he's got a timer and the coffee's brewed and he can pour the coffee into the cup. He can move the coffee cup and himself from the kitchen to the living room. He can sit down. That's fine. But if he's sitting down and realizes, wait, I forgot to get the mail. And he goes from his house. He opens the door with his coffee cup, carries it into a public space. Now he's broken the command and he's done work on the Sabbath. Another one, this one's really awesome. Don't tear toilet paper on the Sabbath. It is so important you prepare for the Sabbath. Right. So you just imagine this with me. You know, you're in Israel and you're a Jewish person and try to honor the Sabbath. You know the rules. You're at the hotel and you forgot to pre-tear. And there's this terrifying moment, right, where you've done your, what you had to do and you're, you are sitting on the throne and you look and there's the roll and you look down at the floor and you look at the roll and you look up at God. You look back at the roll and you think, there is no good option here, right? Very, very important uh, to prepare for the Sabbath in the Jewish world. One more just for fun. Uh, don't push an elevator button. I learned this one the hard way. I was in Tel Aviv, which is on the Mediterranean coast, 27-floor hotel. I was on floor 25. I got up on a Saturday morning, the Jewish Sabbath. I walked onto the elevator that was marked Sabbath elevator, but I thought, well, it's the Sabbath. So I got on the Sabbath elevator, and it began to go down, but it stopped at every single floor. And I thought, what kid pushed all the buttons, right? Because that's what we do in America. Oh, no. This elevator had been shifted to Sabbath mode because you can't push a button on the Sabbath, but you can ride on an elevator. So so I, I say all that just to show you what it is like to try to navigate the maze of rules that grow, grew up around the commands God gave the people. And similar religious rules were in place to guide the lives of Jesus' first disciples. In fact, if you were to say to the early disciples of Jesus, what does God want from you? They would say, we're supposed to obey the commands. And if you said, which commands? They would say, all the commands. So rule following was right at the center of the religious experience of the Jewish people in Jesus' day. And what these young guys didn't realize that day as they sat by the shores of the Sea of Galilee was that Jesus was about to mess with their entire approach to religion. And he was going to point them to something better that was coming on the horizon, something that no one saw coming. He was about to introduce them to an entirely new way for people to relate to God. In the end, Jesus was on a mission to change everything for them. And here's the good news for us as well. He was about to prescribe a new and better way of life. He was about to amend, expand, and even reverse a thousand years of Jewish teaching and tradition. In fact, as the Sermon on the Mount unfolds, and we we looked at one of these yesterday, Jesus was about to say things like this. You have heard that it was said. In other words, the Bible says, the scriptures say, Moses says, tradition says, you've heard. But he says, but I tell you. 
And it's so easy for us to miss the significance of this. Remember, if Jesus' disciples are rule-following uh, Jewish boys, Jesus starts messing with the rules of religion, and they're thinking, dude, the miracles are cool, but you can't do that. You can't mess with Moses. I mean, who do you think you are? And Jesus maybe would say to them in a playful moment, there's a great answer to that question. You just need to wait and see, okay? Um, and so, uh, it, but again, Jesus was messing with the Jewish rules of religion, and he wasn't even being subtle about it. And Jesus realized that these tensions were going to surface. And so before he begins to describe the specifics of this better way of life that he was going to unleash on the world, Jesus heads off their potential misunderstanding this way. He says to them, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's the Hebrew scriptures. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. And this in English is like, we just go, oh, that's nice. And you say, no, no, there's so much going on here. I can't wait to, to share it with you, actually. See, the only reason Jesus would have said this is that they would soon think that he had come to abolish the law and the prophets, which was unthinkable. So Jesus says to them, no, no, that's not why I've come. I've come to fulfill them. But what exactly does that mean? And the answer to that question has staggering implications for how we read and understand the Old Testament. And Jesus hints at an answer as he continues. He says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until, he says, everything is accomplished. And just notice two things from those two slides. The first is that Jesus suggests that the Old Testament law might actually disappear, once everything is accomplished. And the second thing, uh, when he says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fill them, it's like he's saying he is somehow intimately involved in this fulfilling of the law. And I think his Jewish disciples would have been stunned by the implications of this statement. Jesus is saying that God's rules to ancient Israel in the Old Testament will actually start disappearing once everything is accomplished. And they would have thought, how is that even possible? And what do you mean everything is accomplished? And so to get towards an answer to that question, we need to explore what Jesus meant when he said he came to fulfill the law. Uh, in the Greek language, fulfill, the word translated fulfill there basically means to bring to a designated end. In other words, Jesus didn't come to abolish or destroy the validity or the credibility of the Jewish law. He came to bring it to its designated end. I recently heard a pastor describe it this way. He says, if the Jewish law were a homework assignment, Jesus was completing it. If the Jewish law were a speech, Jesus was concluding it. And if the, G if Jesus, the Jewish law were a plane, Jesus was landing it. And, and so standing on the hillside near the Sea of Galilee, Jesus stuns his first disciples by telling them that God's conditional, if you will, I will covenant with Israel was coming to an end. And moreover, it was the end for which it was intended from the very beginning. It's like no longer, he, he would say to them, would, would God interact with them in the terms outlined at Mount Sinai? No longer would be there an endless list of rules to follow. No longer would there be an endless flow of blood from the animal sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem. That covenant had a purpose, and that purpose was almost complete. It's almost like when God established the covenant of conditional blessing with ancient Israel, Mount Sinai, right? If you obey me fully, then out of all the nations, you'll be for me a treasured possession. It's like he set a timer. And according to Jesus, the time was running out. 
Now, now one of my favorite pastors, a guy named John Piper, great writer, respected scholar, uh, he wrote this in a book called A Peculiar Glory. He says, Jesus was not just another member in the long line of wise men and prophets. He was the end of the line. He said, to be sure, many instructions from the Old Testament are no longer to be practiced. But this is not because these practices and rules were wrong, but because they were temporary. And we're pointing forward to the day Jesus Christ would fulfill them and thus end them. He says, the coming of Christ did not establish them, abolish them rather, but it did make them obsolete. And if you grew up in church like me, that might strike you as a little bit extreme, like, whoa, there, John Piper, hello, right? But you should know if it strikes you that way, it was even more so the way that that concept hit the ears of Jesus' first disciples. But, but he was clear he came to fulfill and remove the Jewish rules of religion, not just to fulfill the obligations of the Old Testament law, but to remove them. And he would say to them, you know, just like you don't abolish a home by completing its construction, and just like you don't abolish a flight plan by landing the plane, and you don't abolish a homework assignment by completing it, it's like Jesus said, I, I didn't abolish the Old Testament law when I fulfilled it, but in fulfilling it, I made it unnecessary. I made it obsolete. And, and if, you, if that word struck you as a little strong, you should know that the author of Hebrews concurs. That's actually where Piper got that language. Author of Hebrews describes it this way, by calling this new covenant, or this covenant new, Jesus has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. So according to Jesus and the author of Hebrews, the Old Testament law would disappear once everything was accomplished, which raises a great question. When exactly did that happen? And if you're tracking with me, you already know the answer to that. Because a few years after Jesus spoke these words to his disciples, he died a brutal death on a Roman cross. And if you read the account carefully, Jesus says something right at the end of his life, his last words on planet Earth prior to the resurrection. He looks down from the cross and he says, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And many, 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 many scholars would argue that when Jesus says, it is finished, he was speaking of the old covenant. Because the old covenant was designed to help people live in a restored relationship with God. And that restored relationship in a sinful world was made possible by animal sacrifices. But people kept sinning. And so the blood had to keep flowing. But when the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, the once and for all, the once and forever sacrifice, hung on the cross, and his blood spilled. Everything changed. And no longer would people relate to God through properly navigating a mind-numbing maze of rules and regulations. No longer would they bring animals to sacrifice on the altar in Jerusalem to pay for the sins they had committed. It's like the it that Jesus referred to was the finish, that was finished was God's conditional covenant with Israel. That covenant was, was drawing to a close. It had been fulfilled, and a new day was dawning. And I, I found myself wondering, like, if the disciples had heard Jesus on the cross, if they had heard those words, it is finished, would they have thought back to that previous evening when they shared a last supper, that one, right, with Jesus? 
And during that meal, he held, he held up a cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And they would have thought, wait, 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 Jesus. Well, first of all, new covenant, we're already in a covenant with God, Moses, that covenant, new covenant, what are you talking about? And you're not even bleeding. What do you mean blood? But then the next day, I wonder if they would have made that connection, that, that he really is the Lamb of God who ushered in a new covenant, a new relationship between people and God. But for the next 30 years, the Jewish establishment struggled to respond to Jewish people who placed their faith in Jesus and pursued his way of life. And you could see those tensions throughout the epistles. And one by one, people abandoned strict adherence to the rules of the local synagogue, and they followed the example set forth by Jesus. But then came a day where really this story took a massive, massive step forward. And this is the date. If you're not a nerd, this is still a great date for you to know. There's just a few biblical dates. Um, August 6th, 70 AD. And it's super accurate. You're like, what in the world happened on August 6th, 70 AD? Well, August 6th, 70 AD is the day that it became impossible to follow many of the Old Testament rules and regulations, even if you wanted to. Because on that day, a four-year conflict between Jews and Romans came to a violent end when the Jewish temple, the temple built by Herod, the temple that had been rebuilt um, by Herod from when Solomon's temple had stood there generations earlier. On that day, a four-year conflict between Jews and Romans came to a violent end, and the Jewish temple in Jerusalem was looted, burned, and destroyed. It was tragic. It was completely disruptive on every level to the Jewish people. And the destruction of the temple functionally marked the end of ancient Judaism. The rules lived on, but their ability to live within the rules went away. It disappeared. Just like Jesus had predicted. And, and that's a stunning thought. It's like God's covenant with ancient Israel was no longer needed. It had been fulfilled. It had been replaced by a better covenant, a broader covenant, a new covenant that was cut by the blood of Jesus. And it was an invitation not just to a nation, but to the world, even you and me. It was like on the cross, God threw it wide open and said, whosoever shall come, whosoever will choose to participate. And so that to me is an amazing thought. But there's actually a fun PS to all this because along with the new covenant, instead of rules, Jesus gave his followers just one rule. And that rule, that single command, was to be the defining ethic for Christian behavior. And here's why this is so fun. It is astonishingly, abundantly, and even uncomfortably clear. Because on the same night Jesus held up the cup and talked about the new covenant in his blood, on the same night he would be betrayed by one of his closest friends, during that last supper, he looked at his disciples and he said, a new command I give you. And even that would have been a stumbling block to them initially. Like, I mean, okay, come on, Jesus, you're doing it again. Who do you think you are? Moses gave us commands. You don't get to give commands. But what, but okay, the miracles are cool. What command are you talking about? He goes, I want you to love one another. They're like, okay, that actually, we already had that command. That's great. No, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. That's a, and that, that's a very different sort of love because Jesus demonstrated incredible compassion and humility and self-sacrifice during the course of his life. He gave it all for everyone else. And, and, and so 
as I have loved you, so you must love one another. That would have filled their minds with how Jesus had interacted with them selflessly. And it's like, okay, Jesus, if you want us to love people like you love us, then we're going to have to renegotiate just about everything to which he would respond. That's exactly what I'm talking about. It's a new command for a new people in a new covenant. And no longer will your religion be defined by an endless maze of rules. It's like just, just one rule. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by the way, the night after he said this, he staged a demonstration of love that took their breath away because it took his breath away. And they never got over it. And they finally understood they were to do whatever love told them was necessary to do as they invited the world to come to know and to follow Jesus. And as I, as I imagine how the disciples must have processed this, I think initially they would have thought, well, this is so much better because it's so easy to hide in, in a maze of rules, right? See also the tax code, right? Why is it so complicated? Well, it's complicated because humans have this great way of looking for loopholes. But, but when Jesus gave his new command to love as he loved, there's nowhere to hide B because we just have to work out what it actually looks like to embody love in that situation with a tough family member who we really struggle with. What does it look like to love them with a wayward teen? I mean, I, I said this, sometimes loving a wayward teen means evicting them from your home and sometimes loving a wayward teen means letting them move back in. So there's a process of discernment. But if it's driven by love, you start to see like this is truly a revolutionary way to live. And in fact, as we continue our study this evening of the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to discover that the better life Jesus describes really could be kind of summarized as a series of applications about what love requires. Over and over and over, Jesus provides examples of what this actually looks like to his disciples. It's almost like he says, okay, I, I, I know you know you shouldn't murder, but that's the rule. Let's talk about the heart behind the rule. I know you know you shouldn't lust, but let's talk about your heart. The, the, what, what's deeper? What's driving you? Because if you can engage life through the filter of what love requires, I mean, that, that can actually change the world. And they did. And the message still is changing the world. If I had to summarize our talk for today, I would just say this. There's a big difference between following rules and following Jesus. And I, as I've shared this message with friends who bailed from church, uh, uh, the church where I serve, Keystone, um, was started 25 years ago by a group of people who wanted to create a church for people that just had burned out of church, bailed out of church, but who still had this sense that there was something more out there. And so I end up having a lot of conversations with people who were hurt by the church. Um, and, and what's interesting is so many of them, upon learning this material, would say, man, if I, if I understood this, like, why would I leave? And I said, that's the beauty of the gospel. You've been invited to join a revolution of selfless love that has been changing hearts and lives and continues to change hearts and lives. And none of us do it right, and that's why there's grace. But it's like every single time we fall, God picks us back up and says, all right, let's, 
Let's try again. I love you enough to forgive you, but I don't love you enough to leave. Or I, I, but I love you too much to leave you sitting there in your failure. There's a big difference between following rules and following Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we celebrate the new covenant made by the blood of your Son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We celebrate that day when everything changed. We celebrate as well that first Easter Sunday where Jesus' body was not where everyone thought it would be because he was alive again. We thank you for the hope that that brings all of us. We thank you for grace. We thank you for loving us even in those moments where we are completely unlovable like a perfect heavenly father who desperately loves his children. And so we ask for your grace and your peace to be on us all today. Help us to drink in this place, drink in the beauty of the community and of the natural world around us. And so we celebrate you in the matchless name of your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Everyone said, amen.